0: The year was 1935, and a biologist and professor from Washington State University named Hugh Smith was in Southeast Asia, conducting some research with a team of scientists. They were deep in the jungle, doing some research on boats. And one night, Hugh did not make it back to camp on time, and darkness was falling all around him. And in the still of that twilight, something incredible happened. From his boat, Smith looked up at one of the mangrove trees on the bank of the river, and suddenly the entire canopy glowed as if it were struck by lightning. But instead of it looking like lightning had struck the tree, it was as if lightning were coming out of the tree itself. And then all went dark again, leaving this blurred image in his vision. A few seconds later, the entire tree glowed again, And then it went entirely dark again, twice over the span of three seconds. And slowly these blinking lights on the bank of the river spread until all of the trees along the river bank for a thousand feet in each direction were blinking, glowing, and then going dark at exactly the same time in unison. Upon closer investigation, he found fireflies or lightning bugs, if you prefer, who were all synchronizing the blinking of their lights at the same time. What do you call them in Arkansas? Are they lightning bugs, fireflies, lightning bugs, lightning bugs. Okay, I like that lightning bugs. That's what we called them growing up as well. Upon his return to the United States, Hugh uh, was so excited about this. And so he wrote a a scholarly article in the journal Science called The Miracle in the Mangroves. And he was elated about the reaction that he was sure he was going to receive for this discovery. But nobody believed him. And eventually he lost his job because he was so adamant that this actually happened. Why? Well, others in the scientific community had long held and taught the mantra, survival of the fittest. You've got to be the biggest, baddest, brightest lightning bug that lights up in the dark. And if you are, then you're going to survive. And if you're not, you're going to die off. And the last thing that you want to do as a little lightning bug is help other lightning bugs to attract uh, the females. And so Hugh's story was dismissed as fantasy, as some guy who was just trying to get some attention. Today, not only has his discovery in Asia been proven true, two species of fireflies, which are actually beetles, have been found in Tennessee and South Carolina that also synchronize their blinking at certain times of the year. In fact, it was through my brother and sister-in-law who went and saw this in Tennessee that I first heard about this phenomenon. Here are some real still pictures of what this phenomenon looks like. Now, this was taken in South Carolina last year. Uh, you can just make out the image of the forest there, right? Can you see that? And then this picture was taken uh, about three seconds later. Same place. Same place. And then it goes dark again, and then it lights up again. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, this is on my bucket list of things that I want to go and see. You got you to sign up, and there's a lottery to be allowed to go and, and see this. But I hope over the course of my life I get to do that sometime. But that's not all. In 2010, researchers studied the fireflies in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee And found something that was almost as amazing as Hughes' initial discovery. And they published their study, ironically, in the same scientific journal, Science. What they found was that when the fireflies light up at random times, which is what we normally see with lightning bugs, the likelihood of a female responding to a male is just 3%. Uh, You don't have a very good chance. But when the fireflies all light up together, the likelihood of attracting a female increases to 82%. And so the success rate increased by 79 percentage points when flashing as a interconnected community rather than just blinking their lights as individuals. What a parable. What a parable God has given us And is there not application to be made to the spiritual realm that we are supposed to be better together, especially as it relates to shining our lights in this world? And so over the course of this week, we're going to be studying lessons that deal with this concept, how how God expects us to be together and how that's designed for our benefit, for our good, if we have one another as Christians. And this is something that's been on my mind and heart, because uh, as decided by me and and my fellow worker, Harold Hancock, and the elders uh, back at Timberland Drive where I preach, this has actually been our congregational focus for this year, this idea of being better together. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Matthew chapter 5, please? Matthew chapter 5. Eventually, we're going to get to verse 13, but we're going to look at a few verses in this chapter. The first verse... That we'll actually look at is verse twenty-three, Matthew chapter five and verse twenty-three. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm looking forward to this week. I appreciate the invitation, um, and i I've been praying for for this effort. Um, I've been praying uh, uh, for several weeks now. I was praying this morning that God would be glorified in the things that we do. That I would get to know you a little better. Uh, that I would get to. Uh, deepen my relationships with some of you that I've known in times past, uh, but but ultimately that we all might be encouraged to be more who God has called us to be as Christians. So Matthew chapter 5, this is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And at first glance, the Sermon on the Mount seems very individualistic. It has some of the most specific application to the individual that Jesus does in in any of his teaching. This is how you, as an individual, become part of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes proclaiming his kingdom and he says, if you want to be a, a citizen of my kingdom, this is the kind of person you need to be. And if we examine the form of the pronouns here in uh, Matthew chapter 5, we find many of them to be singular in nature. For example, if you look there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, therefore, if you bring your, that's you as an individual, your individual gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you as an individual, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then co- come and offer your gift. Uh, we drop down to verse twenty-six, and and the uh, the pronouns there are singular as well. Uh, you drop down to verse twenty-nine, one of the most well-known phrases in this sermon. If your individual right eye causes you to sin. Pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And so too in verse 30. That's talking about you as an individual. I'm not reaching out and plucking your eye out. I've got to pluck my own eye out. This is about self-examination. And much of the sermon is that way. But there are a few sections of this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus does something different where he refers to us as a group of individuals, a group of people. And we see that pretty clearly because the pronouns are plural in nature. That's exactly what we find in Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 13. So turn back to Matthew chapter five and verse 13, if you would. You, all of you. Uh, In Texas, what would we say? Y'all, right? Y'all are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, plural, y'all are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it on a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your, uh, we might say, let all y'alls, lights, So shine before men that they may see your, all of you, all of your good works and glorify all of your Father in heaven. Now, I understand that when we read that, we can maybe read too much into that, right? We can read too much into that and say, well, maybe he's referring to uh, this group of people that he sees before him by the sea. And he's saying, all of you as individuals need to be doing that. But I'm not sure if that's really what he's saying. Anybody in here reading from the old King James this morning? We have anybody got an old King? You know, used to people raise their hands proudly. Now it's like, yeah, I'm still reading from the old King James. Uh, there are some real advantages to reading from the Old King James, especially for something like this. The translators of the uh, Old King James Version of the Bible were were better equipped to maintain the distinction found in the biblical Greek between the singular and plural second-person pronouns and verb forms. Because in English, they still used thou, thee, thy, and thine for the singular, and ye, you, your, and yours for the plural. So in the Old King James, it reads like this. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. Let your, all of your, light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now certainly this applies to us as individuals. Don't misunderstand me. But I think sometimes maybe we overlook the group application. We are not, to use our parable, we are not one firefly shining my little light in my little corner. That's a phrase I use back home all the time. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be shining our lights. What we are instead is a group shining our little lights in our little corner, And even in the images that Jesus uses here, we see that idea of what I'm supposed to be doing as an individual, but also what we are supposed to be doing as a group of individuals. There in verse 14, for example, you are the light of the world. But then he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world is that concept. And he gives two illustrations of this. Verse 15, it's an individual light nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. So one single lamp in a house under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. That's an individual light. But what about what we just read a second ago at the end of verse 14? A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's a group, isn't it? A person... A single light up on a hill, even if it's on a hill, a single light can be hidden, but a city can't be hidden. A city isn't one person or one light, it is many lights. Uh, And there are all sorts of ways that we might illustrate this. Uh, Last year we had the opportunity, my mom and dad and my family uh, and my sister, uh, we got to go to Hawaii. Anybody in here ever been to Hawaii? Hawaii? This is our first time. It was a a beautiful place, an incredible place. Uh, We stayed in Honolulu for a a number of days. You see, uh, I'm confused which way. Let's go this way. All right, this is Diamond Head right here. Uh, We stayed in a house that was kind of like right over here, an Airbnb sort of situation. Um, And during the day, where do you think our attention went? Like right to the ocean, man. I mean, it was gorgeous, it was beautiful. You could just hear the waves crashing against the beach, you know. It was it was awesome. But at night, at night the ocean goes dark. You can hardly see it at all. And where do you think our attention was drawn then? It was drawn to the city. It was drawn to the lights. And and something that I didn't realize, um, I told some of y'all earlier this morning, I grew up in West Texas, one of the flattest places on earth. You can actually see the curvature of the earth uh, like you can on the ocean. Um, So super flat. So everything's a mountain to me. But there were some pretty mountainous areas here. And in fact, even in Honolulu, you see all of these houses that are up on these hills just outside of downtown. And some of that was pretty steep. It wasn't quite this steep where we were staying, but pretty close. And at night, these hills would just glow. And your attention was drawn over there. You could see this city that was set on a hill. And that really is the idea of what Jesus would have done as well. You imagine him there at the Sea of Galilee and where we believe the Sermon on the Mount took place on the northern end of that sea or lake. If you look across the lake, you know what you see? The city of Tiberias, a city that is set on a hill. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look over there, a city set on a hill? You can't hide it. You can't hide all of those people who have come together. And so too for us. We imagine, we imagine ourselves as that city set on a hill. I can only imagine what Honolulu looks like from the ocean, from the flatness of that ocean to see light in the distance. And if you were a, you know, a sailor and you weren't sure if you were getting to port or not, imagine, imagine the hope that that would provide in the distance. Well, that's that's our power. That's our influence that we can have together. But of course, it isn't just about how our influence is stronger and brighter and better together. It is also better for us to be together. We think about the very, thing, the very first thing that was not good in God's creation. What was it? You remember? This is in Bible class. Let's pretend for a second. What was the very first thing in God's creation is either good or very good. What was the very first thing that was not good? It is not good for man to be alone. In Genesis Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. The isolation of man was not good. And we think throughout the Bible, everyone had their companion, right? Moses had Aaron and Miriam. Joshua had Caleb. David had Jonathan. God actually sent Elisha to Elijah because Elijah was so discouraged about being alone and working alone. Jesus saw fit to send out 12 apostles. And how did he send them out? He sent them out two by two. He sent the 70 out two by two as well. And early evangelists did the very same thing in the book of Acts and the epistles, going out in groups or traveling parties to preach the gospel. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9 that two are better than one. And he talks about all of the advantages of two rather than one, and we'll study that more later this week. And then he says down in verse 12, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Even from a physical perspective, it is well documented that in most manual labor activities that we might be involved in, two people working together don't work twice as fast. They work exponentially faster than one person can alone. And more and more, we're seeing that in the corporate world as well. And it's not just the cliches that two heads or two hands are better than one. It's not just that we work faster and more efficiently. The work actually seems easier when we are supported by other people in our work. Uh, There was a fascinating study that was conducted in 2008 where folks were brought to uh, the edge of a hill and they were asked to estimate both the size and the steepness of the hill in front of them uh, with various changes made to their environment. So you're part of this study, you're, you're brought to this hill. How steep is it? How big is it? And then we're gonna change some things to see if that affects your perspective at all. And what researchers found is that participants consistently estimated that the hill was smaller and less steep when another person was standing beside them rather than them being alone. And furthermore, participants estimated that the hill was smaller and less steep when there was a supportive friend beside them instead of just an acquaintance or a negative person in their life. Having someone beside us in our lives and in our work makes things better and easier and more fulfilling with a greater return on what we do. Brethren, we need one another. And God created us that way. And God emphasizes that in his word. That phrase, one another, is found often in the New Testament, in the ESV translation. It's found 101 times in 91 verses just in the New Testament. And we know some of the things that we're supposed to do with one another. We're supposed to love one another. I mean, over and over and over we're told that, aren't we? Love one another earnestly, we're told, sincerely, from a pure heart and with brotherly affection. Love one another just as Christ also loved us. And that's his commandment, right, that he gave to his apostles and by extension to the rest of his disciples before he was to be crucified, that we love one another just as I have loved you, Jesus says. And by this, all people will know that we are his disciples if we have this kind of love for one another. But that's not all. We aren't just supposed to love one another. We're also supposed to serve one another. We're supposed to live in harmony with one another. We are supposed to welcome, greet, comfort, and have the same care for one another. We are supposed to bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, submit to and forgive one another. We are supposed to sing to, teach, and admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, and stir one another up to love and good works. We are commanded to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. We are supposed to show hospitality to one another and have humility toward one another and have fellowship with one another. We are to always seek to do good to one another. You probably caught on. Every single one of those is a quotation from the New Testament. And here's my question. How... Are we supposed to do any of those things without one another? We have to have one another in order to fulfill this command. The preacher that I worked with uh, when I was first starting in preaching, I went through a, a couple of summers of preacher training. It's a man by the name of Wayne Fancher. He's an Arkansas guy, originally from Mississippi. He's up in Searcy now. Any of you know Wayne Oh, good guy. Man, is there a more sincere and wonderful guy than Wayne Fancher? I, I don't know. He's he's awesome. And one of the things that Wayne always said, and I assume he still says it to this day, is we as Christians, you can imagine, if you know Wayne, his big old hands up here, you know, we as Christians, <clears throat> that's not deep enough, we as Christians are not supposed to be solitary soldiers. Well, that's true, isn't it? We're not supposed to be out here fighting a battle all by ourselves. But that's exactly what the devil wants us to be. Just like a predator going after a flock of sheep, he wants to divide us from the rest of the flock, get us off here by ourselves where we think we're all alone and there's nobody there to help us so that he can pick us off. But God in his wisdom has seen fit to make us social creatures, to make us creatures created in His image who desire to be with and need one another. Fighting alone in a lifelong war against a relentless and more powerful enemy like sin or death or Satan is a recipe for disaster. We were meant to fight and live and influence alongside one another. Did you know that the depression rates in our country have skyrocketed over the last uh, two and a half years or so? I wonder what in the world could that be about? During the isolation of the COVID pandemic, the statistics went from less than one in 10 Americans suffering from symptoms of depression in 2019 to almost exactly one in three Americans by October of 2021. If that doesn't illustrate our need as human beings for one another, I don't know what could. It is not good for man to be alone. We need one another. We were designed that way. And God has created several wonderful communities to fulfill this need. God created us. He knows we need this, and so there are several things in our life that might fulfill this need. We we maybe think immediately of the home, of the family, of marriage and children. That's the context back there in the book of Genesis, isn't it? That we have one another in the family, but that is a changing community. And not all of us have had the opportunity to be a part of or to remain in that community. Some do not marry. Others do not have children. Most of us will lose our parents before our own death. And we can still be faithful Christians without any physical family whatsoever. No, The community that God intended for all of us to share in and the one that he requires us to be a part of is his church, his ecclesia, his congregation of the called out ones. And God's people working and worshiping together in unity of thought and hope and purpose is God's vision for who we are as Christians. And I talk with people. I've got people in my own family, you know, this, uh, this idea of, well, I've got my own relationship with the man upstairs, you know. I, well, I, I believe in Jesus and I love Jesus, but I, I, I'm not a big fan of that organized religion stuff. Or, you know, I can have a relationship with Jesus without the church. And that's just not what the New Testament teaches. And as part of our focus this week, we're going to talk about Christ's church Uh, often maligned, uh, and yet we think about Christ's church in its design, in its work, in its purpose, in its fellowship, our fellowship. It is exactly what God designed for us knowing it is exactly what we needed, that we are better together. So with that focus in mind, I have till 40, right? All right, let's see if we can make some application to these things. I mean, do you believe me? Do you believe the New Testament? Do you believe that we're better together? And yet sometimes, sometimes in actuality, it doesn't seem like it works out that way. So what can we do to see to it that we are finding the blessings that God intends for us with one another? Let me suggest some goals. I'm, I'm a big uh, Goal guy. I I think we need to have goals in our lives that we're working to, that we're setting for ourselves. And so I'm not suggesting that you establish all of these goals for yourself over the rest of this year, but maybe pick one or two of these and say, that's an area of my life where I can focus, where I need to focus to be who God has called me to be. The first one I want to suggest is this find someone, someone's to assemble and worship with. Hey! Success. First goal already accomplished, right? Here we are. Collective worship is prescribed as a help to us, encouraged as an outlet to God for us, and commanded as a reflection of God in us in the New Testament. It is something that we must do, and we have to have others in order to do it. Uh, notice if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Turn over there with me if you would. You say, ah preacher, I know where you're going on this one. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Read together. Therefore, and we can't go back and read all the book of Hebrews, but let's think about this. Therefore, brethren. Who's he talking to? The brethren, right? Christians. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, us who? The brethren, right? Us as Christians, through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us, us who? The brethren. Let us draw near, draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, let us brethren, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us, let us brethren, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Stir up love and good works. Um, I, I think all of us have probably seen the power of floods. Now, I grew up in West Texas. I told you that. And so we didn't have much rain. But most of the rain we received throughout the year usually came like half of it in, in a couple of hours. That was normally the way it worked. It was just these massive floods. And there was nowhere for the water to go. And so the streets became rivers and that sort of thing. Uh, We flooded a car that way one time, in fact. We got caught in a flash flood. We were okay. Car was not. But you see the power of what water can do. Uh, My sister got to go to Iceland recently, uh, and they have these, they call them sneaky waves. Have you seen this on the news? Iceland is restricting access to a lot of their beaches because people are going out on these beautiful beaches with these cliffs beside them, and they're taking selfies with the water, and these waves are sneaking up on people. So they're calling them sneaky waves. I think it's probably the people aren't paying very good attention. But the sad thing is people are getting like crashed against these cliffs and then taken out to sea. If you've ever seen the power of water when it's stirred up, it has incredible power. That's the image for us as Christians, that we are stirring one another up so that we might have all of the power for love and good works that God intends for us. Maybe your translation says uh, provoke one another to love and good works. We usually think about provoking as a negative thing, right? My little sister provokes me. Uh, Parents, don't provoke your children to wrath. And that's the idea that we're a burr in the saddle to one another in a good way, provoking one another to do what it is we ought to do. Because we're here with one another, we're going to be stirred up to love and good works to be who God has called us to be. And God made it that way. By establishing his church and arranging for collective worship in the church. And it's in that context that he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now this is serious business because he says in verse 26, if we sin willfully, by choosing not to stir one another up, by choosing not to assemble with the saints, after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we cannot be bothered to help one another as Christians, what makes us think that we're going to be saved in those things? We must be stirred up for love and good works. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 puts it this way. From Christ, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We need this. And young people, let me speak to you for for just a second. When you choose to go off somewhere else to work or college or whatever the case might be, you need to find a group of faithful Christians. Before you go, figure out a group of faithful Christians that you can work and worship with. And then the first thing you do when you get there is get plugged in with that group of Christians. Because they need you. Do you hear that? Yeah, you need them, sure. But they need you to stir them up to love and good works. And if you're on the fence about your involvement with, with and in this group of people... That, that assembles here. Make this year the year where you choose to fully be a part. Nothing held back that you supply your part, do your share, and the body will grow and be edified in love. Okay, I got off a little bit there. So I want you to see these and I want you to pick one of these. Find some ones to study with. Find some ones to pray with. Find some ones to confess with, that's something we're supposed to do to be healed. Find some ones to serve with, find some ones to visit others with, that's pure and undefiled religion before God, to visit orphans and widows in their troubles. Find some ones to evangelize with, because we are better together. Bear with me. There is one final important detail to that crazy true story of the synchronized fireflies, Biologists who have studied these fireflies in the jungles of Southeast Asia know now that the glow emanating from those mangroves can be seen for miles. And that means that it's easier for other fireflies, other lightning bugs, to find their way to the light. And so the brighter it shines, the more newcomers join and add their light to the light that is already there. And the better it is for everyone who is involved. It's kind of like what, like uh, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And may we, may y'all, may all of us let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven and that these others might join our light as well. Thank you for your good attention this morning.